Hello to all our listeners and welcome to the Aerospace Ambition Podcast. I'm Marius, alongside my co-host Kieran. As aerospace engineers, we are deeply engaged in the interplay between sustainable aviation, climate change and AI. In today's episode, we will be discussing the uncertainties of mitigating non-CO2 aircraft emissions and the role of regulatory measures in promoting sustainable practices in aviation. Kieran, who's our esteemed guest today? So our guest today is Dr. Bethan Owen, a reader at Manchester Met University and a UN co-rapporteur in the International Civil Aviation Organization Committee on Aviation Environmental Protection, through which she chairs the Emissions Regulation Group so without further ado, welcome Bethan. Hi Kieran, hi Marius, lovely to be here. It's it's a pleasure to have you, Bethan, and I'd like to start off with a personal question. So you hold a very influential position in research and policy making. How would you describe your role in this? I think it's uh, an interesting role, uh, being at sort of at the interface of of research and policy so um, and it's a role that I enjoy because you're trying to translate science and uh, make it understandable to policymakers and therefore have a relevance and hopefully some real world impacts um, of the research that myself and my colleagues and people in the field are undertaking. What is your uh, vision for aviation if you think uh, like 10 or 20 years ahead? It's a very broad question, but uh, how do you envision aviation? You know, that there are so many <laughs> things at play at the moment in a global environment, um, which uh, overtakes the, the course of aviation potentially. But given uh, a more positive, optimistic view of the future, I, I would hope that aviation would continue to connect people throughout the world and um, become more sustainable. And and uh, one particular, from a personal perspective, I, I really feel that it's not just aviation. Um, you know, our whole uh, way of life and co consumption uh, needs to reflect the um, climate change um, issues that are, are facing us. Yeah. Yeah, I think that obviously the, the road to net zero, it's not going to be a, a linear path there. So we just got to figure out the all the intermediate steps along the way. And I know that you and your, your colleagues recently published a review paper on the uncertainties in reducing the non-CO2 climate impact of aviation. For the listeners, the link to this paper is in the show notes. Um, I'm just wondering if you could break down these key non-CO2 climate effects in terms of the actual science behind them and the way in which they induce climate change? Yes, um, it's a complicated um, situation to explain in, in, in very brief terms, but I'll try. And I think, is the paper that you've provided a link to the Royal Society paper or the 2023 paper? Because both would probably... The 2023 paper. Oh, okay, so great. So, yeah. so I probably would tell advise people to look at the, the figure in, in that paper, which is the clearest kind of comparison of CO2 and the other non-CO2 aviation climate impacts. Mm -hmm. uh, to explain a bit, it's, um, it's a quantitative comparison. And as we might discuss a little bit later in the podcast, it, it uses a metric called effective radiative forcing, which I'll um, shorten to ERF. 
Mm -hmm. um, and it's important to note that this is a, a backward looking metric. So it takes um, it assesses the impact of historic av aviation emissions up to 2018. So from the inception of civil aviation in the 1940 to 2018. So it just looks backwards and it looks at then how uh, the contribution to ERF um, which, which is linked to temperature changes, will, will have, have, have impacted from CO2 to, to the other impacts. And on that chart, you'll see red bars and blue bars. Red bars obviously indicate warming and blue bars indicate a negative um, cooling impact. So this ERF metric um, doesn't capture the, the long-lived versus short-lived nature of impacts fully. Um, so when you're looking at future scenarios or policy changes, you 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 couldn't just look at that chart and say, okay, well, uh, contrail cirrus is 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 this percentage, so we need to if we remove that, we will reduce the impact by sixty six percent because the the interrelationship between CO two and non CO two because they have diff such different time. They sort of lived they live for such different lengths of time in the atmosphere. You can't look at it like that. Yeah. CO2 is obviously a long-lived greenhouse gas and it remains in the atmosphere for, for many, many years in the future. Anything that's emitted this year will accumulate uh, year on year, whereas all the other impacts from aviation are short-lived and do generally, anyway, do not persist beyond a period of hours. So that's an important distinction when you're looking at this. Can you maybe, can you maybe just describe the, so the individual contributions? So you've got NOx, you've got contrail cirrus, you've got aerosol effects. Are these the the the, the primary what uh, non CO two effects from aviation? Would you say? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the potentially most significant, um, although with a large uncertainty, is and this is about fifty percent of the total ERF, as I say, up to twenty eighteen, is from the contribution of contrail cirrus. So that, that that's the evolution of these line-shaped condensation trails that you see um, evolving into longer-lived um, cirrus cloud cover, which is very similar to natural cirrus cloud cover. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, again, about 50% of this ERF. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know about whether your listeners are all probably know all this, but contrails are formed, these line-shaped contrails, which can, under certain conditions, translate to cirrus they're formed when a, a warm engine exhaust passes through some parts of the atmosphere where the temperature and humidity conditions create the criteria of ice supersaturation so they're not always formed it's only into certain certain conditions sure um the next most significant non-co2 impact is is it, again i say maybe because of the uncertainties are from emissions of nox which, um, when emitted in the upper, upper atmosphere, undergo chemical interactions. Mm. So there's, a, you know, in terms of methane and ozone, and there's the reduction of, yeah, so, so well, on balance anyway, it's the negative and uh, positive effects are, are balanced out to give about a, a warming impact, and that'll be about fifteen percent of the total warming from aviation. So you've got generally, if you just split it up into those three three things, you'd have those three major impacts. You're talking CO two about thirty five percent, cirrus contrail about fifty percent, and then um, NOx about fifteen percent. Looking at that 
2018 ERF metric. And I was just going to say, just just breaking down the NOx emissions, you've got the, just looking at the figure here, you've got the short-term ozone increase, which is the largest forcer in the in the warming direction. Um, but then due to the, the chemical changes over time, you also get a long-term ozone decrease. So the, the ozone actually decreases over time. <clears throat> uh, then you get a, a methane decrease due to the knock-on effects of ozone as well as stratospheric water vapor decrease so it's kind of a, a compounding effect which acts in both directions right so you've got cooling and warming effects resulting from NOx emissions but the overall effect is still very much a warming effect that's right and and, and to complicate matters further further the NOx effects you know also operate over different time scales so you get mm. a short-term ozone increase but a, a longer-term ozone decrease, um, although the the warming from the increase is, is is stronger, and then you get this cooling from the methane decrease. So that's a complicated picture in itself. And um, there is a paper which you could also put it put in the chat to people would be the the impacts of we did a we had a look at um, changing. NOx emissions in the future and potential impacts of um, background NOx, how that impacts. So if we have a future where the atmosphere has has lower NOx emissions from other sources as well as as aviation, these signs may change and the balance may change even to cooling. And and that was in the presence of increasing NOx from aviation, right? So even if NOx still increases from aviation, the sign may flip due to the fact that we have different background concentrations, right? Mm. So again, huge sources of uncertainty, even as we go far into the future. <laughs> That's right. This is the, the, the fraught difficulty of, um, yeah, mm. of, of how, the, all the interactions, I guess, between these different impacts as well. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of other non-CO2 effects, we've looked at NOx and contrail cirrus um but there, there are other that some other ones on the chart perhaps which are direct impacts of water vapor soot and sulfur dioxide but no um we couldn't put a best estimate on the effects of sulfur and soot on on cloudiness um so that that uh when you're looking at the literature of modelling studies, there was, um, you know, credible studies which indicated forces, forcings from from this, ranging from large negatives through to small positives. So, obviously, if the um, large negative um, was was the case, then that would change the picture altogether. So, that's a that's a large uncertainty which needs some some further research. Yeah, just looking at the paper, it says that soot particles which are processed through contrails have been assumed to initiate nucleation of ice crystals. So you get this aerosol cloud interaction that, that may cause a large negative forcing, so a large cooling effect, due to the fact that these particles have been processed through contrails, um, which we really don't know much about at all. So there, there may be a large negative forcing associated with contrail formation that could potentially flip the sign in some cases from a warming effect to a cooling effect. So I think that's largely the basis behind why 
um, there's there's a whole group of people out there who think that contrail avoidance shouldn't be going ahead as soon as maybe other groups think it's necessary. But yes, I mean, I think in terms of contrail avoidance, that that's a yeah. We, you know, I think I think obviously there's a large level of uncertainty over uh, the actual ERF and the size of the ERF. Um, there's you know large uncertainties, low confidence. We know that, but um, and there are new estimates coming out uh, which which could be smaller than the CO two forcing. So, control service it is you know and people a lot of proponents of um, you know, avoid contrail avoidance would say, oh, hang the uncertainties. You know, we know that uh, generally it's a big effect and we 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 know how to we could avoid these immediately. But I, I think the, the the very big problem with this is as I explained, contrails, which may evolve into contrail cirrus, only occur under certain ice supersaturation conditions. And predicting that in a sufficiently accurate basis in terms of time and location is 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 currently not not possible um and you know there's the argument then of if you fly higher or lower to avoid a contrail you will produce more co2 in in, a, in a, inevitably it might be a very small amount but you also might fly from an area which isn't actually ice supersaturated to one that is because you don't have that proper information. So, you, you know, you, you could be making things worse by by your actions. So I think that's the, you know, uncertainties don't necessarily, you know, you can have a precautionary approach in lots of ways where uncertainty wouldn't stop you um, enacting certain policy. But if the uncertainty might create a uh, a counterintuitive, um, you know, the opposite effect of what you're looking for, then then it's more problematic. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it that's that's the problem at the moment. You know, is 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 knowing knowing if you're doing the right thing. I'd like to step back and uh, zoom out a little bit. Um, in the first paper, it's uh, more of like a uh, retrospective analysis and the, uh, the collective impact, right, of the fleet over a long period of time, whereas the latter paper um, is looking at it on a per-flight basis. And therefore, on a per-flight basis, we could actually take action. So those are different perspectives. Exactly. I mean, the, the ERF, metric this backward looking metric is a scientifically kind of uh, sound way of of comparing the impacts that have happened so far from aviation and on that basis you know despite the low confidence associated with the the different elements and some of the uncertainties that we've just been talking about you can you can use that as a, a fairly good comparison but that's very different from saying Okay, well, non-CO2 is 66% without adding 66% of the ERF up to 2018. Because if you look at the future, that 66%, or say looking at that 66%, that's based on the uh, growth that we've had so far. And if you change the growth rate, uh, the relationship between CO2 and non-CO2 would change. So... Perhaps if I can um, uh, describe how if 
if the growth rate were to lessen or be constant, for example, say if we were to stay at our current 2024 emissions into the future, then um, the non-CO2 forcings would would adjust very quickly. So they wouldn't keep going up. They would stay the same if we were to stay at 2024 levels. Whereas the CO2 emissions, because of their accumulative effect, each year the CO2 um, impact would grow. So um, in a constant emission rate scenario, the CO2 would um, become relatively more important. So, and the non-CO2 would be less than 66%. And obviously, if we were to decline emissions, then that would be even more so. So really the 66% reflects this, this, this the, the growth that we've had um, and the relative impacts are, are that. So, so 66% is not a fixed fraction. Um, and that's what, um, you know, so, in, and that is added to all these other um, issues that I describe about um, uh, void and contrails. So, you know, um, determining policy from uh, the historic comparison is not, you have to be very careful. Yeah. Yeah. So it's stressing the importance between uh, backwards looking metrics and forward looking metrics. So you've got the difference in time horizon of different species. So course as you mentioned co2 can last for millennia whereas contrail cirrus will uh, dissipate within well up to a time scales of up to a day um, so even though you've got these very uh, large effects from from contrail cirrus in terms of their climate impact they do only last for very short time scales so if you reduced aviation growth then that would mean that these effects would disappear rapidly um, but then thinking about the metrics from 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 a from a wider perspective you've got not just the radiative forcing which is largely an instantaneous measure of climate impact you've also got the long-term effects and I guess what we're really interested in how do these climate effects result in a temperature change on the surface of the earth because at the end of the day that's that's what climate change really is it's it's the, the temperature change of the Earth atmosphere system. Uh, that's right. And I, th I think reducing CO2 emissions is probably, you know, the focus, because if you, if you decrease your growth in CO2 emissions, um, some policy measures will potentially also reduce um, non-CO2 CO2 impacts, I can describe um, how soot emissions may be um, from the introduction of SAF, so soot emissions may reduce, um, which may, um, although the, again, this is a huge uncertainty, this is the problem with CO2, we're, we're, we have a much higher level of confidence of the impacts for a start. Um, but yeah, go, going along with the idea that SAF, that's sustainable aviation fuel, is generally lower in aromatic compounds and uh, will therefore produce lower NVPM or soot emissions, uh, which should reduce the number of ice crystals, which should reduce the um, uh, contrail formation, which ultimately would um, reduce the contrail cirrus um, contributions. But 
you know, even that is under some doubt because some there have been some measurement studies looking at very low soot emissions using lean burn engines and SAF. And the contrail is has been in, has not reduced in the way that was expected. And there's a you know a very famous um modeling exercise which uh which was undertaken a long time ago, but now is coming back into play to see that, well, perhaps other things are taking over rather than just soot emissions at these very low soot um, conditions um, where you have, may have aerosol um, volatile particulate um, interactions. So it's, everything is, is kind of yes, but. So that's the difficulty with non-CO2. So um, I think, you know, the, the UK Climate Change Commission uh, you know, uh, uh, provide the kind of I, I agree with their, their their view, which is you know that efforts to reduce um, non CO two um, is important, and but this is provided they're not achieved at the expense of additional CO two emissions. So uh, I think that's what I would um, agree with that that view. So maybe not so much low-hanging fruit as it's always painted to be no no if, if it if it were that would be great but i think it's uh uh um, not, not not we're not there yet sure yeah. i think the common ground of of all of these efforts is to quantify the problem your job as far as i imagine it to be is not only doing scientific research but also a huge part is communication and so you, you need to communicate the size of the problem. Then there is maybe a potential to use the wrong metric, right? Uh, because some metrics, uh, when you want to make these things comparable, as you're trying to quantify it, um, you have to use CO2 equivalencies, as we've already uh, discussed. Could they be a little bit misleading in some circumstances? And what is the metric that you like to use to communicate the size of the problem? Yeah, I think, well, it's horses for courses, as they say. I think really there is no one metric that's, that's I would sort of say, this is the one you, you would use. I think it depends on what you're looking at. And um, I think the ERF metric is a good metric when you're, when you're trying to establish the a more scientific basis for the different interactions of, of compounds. But for policies, you know, for future policy making, um, there are different metrics. Um, and obviously the longer term, longer uh, outlook you have on your metric, whether it's 100 years or 20 years, will change the um, imp relative importance of the long-lived versus the short-lived metrics. Um, and I think um, I would... I would I, I think there's a quite a good summary in the um, in the ICAO long-term aspirational goal documentation, which is which is on the on the public um, ICAO portal. There, there's quite a good an appendix. I think it's Appendix S, which gives you different metrics from GWP with various um, which are global warming potential metrics of different time horizons and global global temperature potential over different time horizons um, for the non-CO2 impacts of, and you, it gives you a matrix and how the different effects. So I think, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, I know policymakers don't always like, they like to have one answer 
But I think in this regard, um, it's it's good to show a range and how different metrics show different things. And you need to relate that to what you're trying to achieve and um, and to have that understanding of like not one metric. And that's why, I mean, there has been such a uh, an enthusiasm to have a multiplier of three, for example, for your um, non-CO2 versus CO2. And although that may be reflective, as I say, of, of, of certain metrics, it's not the whole picture. So it will, you know, re really as a policymaker, they need to understand and it needs to be described clearly how the non-CO2 and CO2 impacts interact. Yeah, so it's definitely a trade-off between providing a, a wide range of different metrics, but also trying to home in on a certain uh, eventual output of, of these metrics in terms of the, the goals that you're trying to achieve. So I'm guessing depend, depending on which mitigation measure you're looking at, so maybe for SAFs it might be different, it might be worth looking at different metrics compared to control avoidance. I think uh, you should look at a range of metrics for each of your policy outcomes to make sure that you're not um, doing something that is opposite to what you're intending. So, um, as I say, I, I think I really um, support the UK CCC in saying that, you know, that you shouldn't be creating additional CO2 emissions Um in the course of trying to reduce your non-CO2 emissions. That's probably intuitively and scientifically you could show that that that's that's probably not a good idea. We've mentioned policymaking so often now we have to dive into that topic um, already because you have a very exciting role and um, we've already mentioned um, ICAO. How does ICAO work? Like, What is the role of ICAO and uh, how does it uh, make an impact for sustainable aviation? Well, um, international aviation emissions are not the preserve of an individual state. Um, so in terms of um, emissions reductions um, for climate change and also for, for um, aeroplane certification, they're not done on an individual state basis. They're um, part of the United Nations Specialised Agency, as, as it's known, which is International Civil Aviation Organisation. And this has um, the remit for not just environment, but also safety and navigation, etc. But obviously the CAPE, which is this Committee of uh, on Aviation and Environmental Protection, this group is responsible for setting um, international certification um, emissions regulations. So uh, I kept for so there are regulations for a number of noise as well as, as emissions. Um, but uh, initially they were mainly focused on air quality regulations. So there was CO, hydrocarbons, um, NO2, well, NOx, and um, more recently we have had a CO2 regulation and the obviously the, the, the greenhouse gas um, regulations, which also include um, NOx and particulate matter, this NVPM, the whole suite of regulations is, is, is focused at both air quality and climate change. So when ICAO, or the, the process is, 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 a, is an interesting one because the ICAO has this Committee on Environmental Protection and within the committee, 
there are working groups, the technical groups, which are made up of state representatives, so um, government representatives, um, industry representatives. Um, we have uh, civil society representatives, which are which which in ICAO are represented be by the ICCT, the International Coalition for uh, I can't remember what it's what the audit stands for now. Clean transportation. That's it. That's it. They were the group who um, who kind of uh, unpicked the Volkswagen emission uh, regulation scandal. So they 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 they're a strong voice within ICAO to balance the um, industry voices, and then obviously all the state and representatives and their technical. Um, People, so we have lots of people from DLR in Germany and Honora in France. So the uh, and Transport Canada, you know, all the um, national research laboratories tend to, to participate as well as universities. So the group that I co-chair with with a, a, a US colleague is responsible for recommending um, how how a, a we're given the task of saying we want to regulate. Um, at the moment, we've been asked to regulate CO2 and noise. There are currently independent regulations for noise and CO2 at an aeroplane level. So if you want to fly your aeroplane internationally, as part of your certification process, you have to pass these emission standards as well as um, all the safety stuff. So they're kind of quite um, strong in their implementation. Um the, so we've been asked to develop a CO2 and noise stringency, they call it, which means making the standards stricter. But we've asked, been asked to look at them both together because there are trade-offs in terms of technology between noise and CO2. Often noise reduction technology will make your aeroplane heavier, for example, which will make it less fuel efficient. Um, another example would be development of ultra high bypass fans which may be very good in terms of fuel consumption and therefore co2 potentially might not show the noise improvements you might get from other technologies so we've been asked to look at them together and to tighten up the co2 standard um, and the noise standard the balance yet is to be um, decided but in terms of our group we get in all the different um, governments and the we have Airbus and Boeing and Rolls-Royce and GE, all the kind of OEMs, the uh, manufacturers, as well as civil society. Um, and we kind of have to get a consensus on what we think technology can deliver in, in the, up to 2030, for example, on, on noise and CO2. And then we, we recommend uh, a certain number of stringency options to the um, CAPE and then the state members of CAPE will decide or pick from the range that we give them and the outputs of, of our cost effectiveness analysis and they will decide to recommend to the ICAO Council what should be the standard, the new standard. And then that's enacted in domestic regulations via the, the US Federal Aviation Administration or in Europe the European um, Safety Agency, AASA, and, they're the, and, and various other um, national airworthiness authorities. And they're the ones that get the either the engine, when it's in terms of NOx or NVPM, or the aeroplane when it comes to CO2, to say, does this pass or fail the standard? 
and you know if you, if you don't if you don't pass it you don't get certified so it's a it's a big deal for the airplane for the engine I have one um, small follow-up question. I, I understand how now the working group passes on um, insights to the, the CAPE committee and then goes to ICAO. And then it um, it is, and this is what I didn't quite get, um, then it needs to be also forwarded into FAA versus EASA. Uh, is that then something um, that EASA, we are in Europe right now, uh, that EASA has to do or is it more like a recommendation? Um, it's it's a recommendation, but it would really be um, the you know EASA and FAA uh, have a mission to produce internationally consistent regulations. So they're very much a voice within the ICAO Cape working groups. So it would be the the process would be uh, not succeeding if if either the FAA or EASA refused at some point in the future to enact that regulation. Um, so EASA, for example, exactly points directly to the um, ICAO documentation. FAA have a different process, but if they kind of absorb it in a different way, but effectively it's, it's the same. You mentioned that ICAO also deals with regulation on the air quality effects of aviation. Mm. So what are, what are the key emissions that result in these these impacts and what are the largest impacts that we see? So from my perspective, we take the the air quality standards that are derived um, by the World Health Organization and the EU and now after Brexit, uh, or however we, we do it in the UK. So the, those air quality standards um, dictate really... Um, what's important and currently the significant emissions that you would have from airports would be NOx and the air quality regulation is is NO2 nitrogen dioxide which is considered to be potentially harmful to human health and, and the environment so NO2 would be one and the other one would be um, particulate matter um, you you can for example see an NO2 signal from Heathrow Airport outside the airport boundary. So you, if you were to model and measure nitrogen um, well, oxide of nitrogen emissions from airplanes around an airport, you would see there would be a contribution from aircraft activity. Um, I think Nitrogen dioxide is a, is a tricky one. They, they've just, I think, actually tightened their air quality regulation for nitrogen dioxide. But um, there is a commission on air pollution called COMIAP, the Committee on Environment and Air Pollution, I think it's called. Um, and, and it was notable that the committee was actually quite split on whether NO2 was um, significantly damaging to health or not. So, but anyway, from an airport perspective, we just take the air quality standard as as being what needs to be considered. So that's that's NO two, um, and for PM, the current air quality regulations are expressed in terms of a mass emission. So, um, the smallest one being PM two point five. So that's all particles less than two point five microns in aerodynamic but aviation particulate matter, um, which which we call non-volatile particulate matter or black carbon, the actual um, 
soot particles, they are very, very much smaller in a sort of 40 nanometer bracket. So they don't actually contribute to PM 2.5's mass very much. Um, and this, we had a big research project recently called Aviator, a European project where we looked at the contribution of um, uh, the par particles, both volatile and non-volatile, to um, air quality, in particular. And um, there, yeah, that the, it's ultra fine particles are considered in terms of toxicity to be important. So it's an emerging field, really. What, how to better map? airplane emissions of uh, very small particles to um, ambient levels. And there is no ambient standard as yet for, for ultrafine particles. So that's a kind of developing field. Um, and of course, at the, at the source side in ICAO, we have an, an engine emission regulation, both for NOx and for NVPM, this sort of particles. The, the NVPM one is very new, relatively new. Um, uh, but we are looking at the moment at um, potentially updating the NOx and MVPM standards in future um, cycles of our work. Um, particularly for NOx, it's quite an interesting one because um, the NOx emission standard for engines um, is plotted against the um, something called the overall pressure ratio of your engine. And the, the the larger your overall pressure ratio of your engine is, the better the fuel consumption, specific fuel consumption to that engine. So there's been a trend for manufacturers to increase their OPR, this overall pressure ratio, um, and then you're allowed to emit more NOx for a higher OPR. And the impact has been that at airport level, potentially as engines are becoming more fuel efficient, then their NOx values have gone up a bit um, significantly. So, so actually we're emitting more NOx, even though the standard is, is higher or the standard is, is more stringent, if you like. So that's one that we're looking at at the moment and whether, whether it's um, OK to keep the standards as it is or whether this needs to be considered further and whether this allowance should should change for higher OPR. So. Yeah, so I know that ICAO has this, this data bank, which is a database of all of the different aircraft engine combinations um, showing you the emission indices of, is it NOx, particulate matter, uh, maybe carbon monoxide as well. So yeah. maybe these these harmful emissions that, mm -hmm. that can be harmful to... Um, human and plant health so these these are measured at different mm. is it different altitudes or different under different scenarios for the for the aircraft they're just measured for the landing and takeoff cycle at the moment so we have um so you have different emission indices for climb out takeoff idling etc for the different engines uh, these are actually the certification values so the engines under rigorous control conditions. So they're very good and complex data set. Um, one open question at the moment is um, the, the rule of thumb has been for, say, for NOx and for MVPM, that if you regulate these landing and takeoff emissions, that's the ground level emissions, if you like, or up to climb 3,000 feet, um, then if, you, if you're reducing the emissions at LTO, this will also create um, 
reductions at altitude. So whilst we're regulating for air quality purposes ostensibly, this will also improve emissions at altitude. And we have various methods for estimating emissions at um, ground level to altitude. Um, and that's a, a very current um, aspect of work in, in my group at the moment where we are considering are these methods suitable, particularly when we have new combustion products um, which use lean burn combustion rather than the traditional um, RQL or advanced RQL methods, which are different combustion regimes. So are we accurately predicting? Um, some people maybe feel that we should have a cruise or a cruise-like measurement point added to the certification to ensure that, you know, uh, things aren't suddenly shooting up when you're in a cruise um, mode. Yeah, I think that would certainly help from a climate modelling perspective as well to have, because it's where these, the, the primary climate effects, especially the non-CO2 effects, occur at the biggest scale is at cruise altitude, whereas you don't necessarily have the emissions measurements from from a data bank like this? No, no. I mean, there are, um, in, in ICAO, there is um, uh, DOC 9889, which, which gives you some methods for estimating um, uh, from LTO to cruise. And you have things like um, the Boeing fuel flow method is a very famous one that people use. And within um, ICAO, we use that to work out full flight knocks and have a similar method which we're evolving at the moment for MVPM. Earlier, Bethan, we learned um, about uh, how your emission regulation can actually have an impact because it's like a, a fail-pass kind of regulation. Um, another way to, to have an impact is, of course, um, incentivation. And I recently learned that uh, within the EU Innovation Fund, uh, there was a call, there was a tender, and... Um, it was called for solutions to uh, measure and mitigate, uh, for example, among other effects, also um, controlled service effects. So that was an active step uh, by the EU forward to at least have uh, proposals for how we measure it in the MRV scheme and then potentially also to mitigate it. Now, once more, uh, to understand the ecosystem here, uh, now that I learned uh, how it works together with EASA, for example, ICAO, but um, where is the connection here between um, what you at ICAO do and such calls, for example, or regulation in general in the EU? Yes, yeah, so that's, that's an interesting um, dynamic, I guess. Um, I mean, the, the standards that I've talked about, um, I first probably should say they're technology standards. So they're not about operation, they're about technology. And they're not about fuels, they're about technology. So they really are at the basis of, you know, uh, what product Airbus or Rolls-Royce produce off the, off the production line, not about how... They, they're, they're reflective of operational um, methods, but not, not actual emissions. Um, now, an example of how ICAO and the EU policy kind of fields may, may um, sometimes work together or sometimes kind of contradict or whatever is, is the EU emissions um, trading scheme is a good example how um, 
when when the EU were going to bring aviation into the EU ETS, there was a lot of legal challenges from organisations and um, airlines saying that, you know, you, you can't regulate when we're flying from the US into Europe. It's like, you know, you're taxing us. And, you know, there's a lot of contention over um, how the EU ETS would would bring in aviation, um, such that it sort of was was almost unworkable. Um, but the pressure of the EU ETS and bringing aviation into it kind of um, forced the the development of the Corsia within, which is the um, carbon offsetting um, scheme um, for international aviation. That, that ICAO have developed. So the one thing kind of provided some kind of pressure, if you like, to develop the other. I mean, varying degrees of how how um, how effective people or how good people think Corsair is and offsetting in general, but, but that was an example of how EU regulation can sort of influence things. And so ICAO not only does regulation um, from the basis of, of you know emissions and hardware, it was also uh, involved in um, very much involved in fuels at the moment, and in you know looking at um, sustainable aviation fuels and um, production and ramping up uh, different kinds of SAFs. Um, so. I think ICAO plays a role beyond just the regulations of noise and emissions, but in developing what they call these long-term aspirational goals and getting kind of the global community behind some of these more ambitious carbon reduction schemes is very, very valuable. I mean, a lot of people complain that ICAO moves very slowly and, you know, it, it isn't moving quickly enough or hard enough, but it is a global group at least, you know, it's not the EU just deciding something and then everyone else complaining and then nothing happening. So um, it is it is a forum, uh, a global forum, which is very valuable for a global industry. And as far as I'm aware, you've got a, an upcoming meeting next year, is it? A CAPE meeting? Yes, um, we will in February 2025. Um, uh, the working groups within CAPE, including mine, will be recommending a certain uh, range of stringency options um, for CO2 and NOx, uh, for CO2 and noise, which they will decide on. And importantly, also, they will decide on future work programme, whether to look at a new NOx and MVPM stringency. Um, there'll be lots of input on fuels as well as we go forward. They've had a big event um, recently on sustainable aviation fuels. And this is something uh, which is a part, big part of ICAO's work at the moment. We're also look, looking at the um, these long-term aspirational goals. Um, the uh, They're going to be monitoring and reporting on progress towards those goals, which I think is really important. There's so many abandoned goals, whether they're industry goals, state goals, ICAO goals, and not just aviation, this is all sectors, that because they're not binding in any way, they just become abandoned and people forget about them and they move on to something else. So I think the monitoring and reporting of these aspirational goals is, is critical. So that'd be very interesting to see how, how that goes. Especially in, in SAF policymaking, right? So sustainable aviation fuel 
the targets that we've set for that, are, most of them so far have been broken over the past few decades. Well, I guess all of them in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, so that's that's an area which is, is fairly prevalent from that perspective of of having these missed targets. And it's something that as an industry, and, and as you say, across all sectors, it's, it's something that we really need to get our act together on. Yeah, it's having some kind of, you know, monitoring of um, waypoints along the way as well to, you know, it's um, it's all very well to say, well, by 2050, we will have 80% reduction in CO2 from the use of um, SAF, but, you know, that's not magically happen overnight. So, um, I suppose that missing targets is something that you can easily do if you move your attention just away from one problem to the next problem. And I don't want to get uh, philosophical here, but uh, also the um, AI breakthrough, um, the paper was called Attention is All You Need. And attention is what we are uh, trying to uh, provide um, for the right kinds of topics here also in this podcast. So maybe to to wrap up this, this episode a little bit, do you think that if, if we really look at the big picture, that currently the conversations or the discussions are centering the attention on the right kinds of problems? Or is there anything that the ecosystem as a whole should look into more or less? And also, I mean, this can be a call to action to us, to Kieran and I, to also uh, move the focus of the discussions in the podcast to to uh, different topics. Well, I, I guess my my mantra would be keep focusing on reducing co2 emissions and you know i think with an eye on non-co2 emissions but if the focus is kept on really reducing co2 emissions the the problems will will be more likely to be solved Okay, I was just uh, laughing because we end off our podcast with a tradition. And um, the tradition is that we uh, pass on a question from one guest to the other. And <laughs> I think that Kieran and I just realized that there would have been a very good timing to slip in the question uh, from our previous guest that was Professor Ian Paul. And uh, he asked a, a question to you. And um we can't break the tradition. So it could be also a question that's fun, that is deep, that is complex, whatever. And he asked, uh, laughingly, he asked the, the question, why are we not doing contrail management today? So what would be your answer? Um, because we don't have the means of predicting when and where uh, these contrails will be formed. And we could be... Uh, as I explained before, moving into a, a nice supersaturated region, as, region as, as easily as away from it at the moment with the data that we have. And it's not that easy to um, to actually uh, predict these. I mean, we don't predict them at the moment with any, any near enough accuracy, but it's not even that easy to do in the future. You know, um, I think water vapour is a hard thing to measure and a hard thing to predict. So what are your views on at least conducting operational trials? So um, there's been various approaches so far, such as the, the MUAC contrail avoidance trials, which have to, to some extent proven the success of the concept by uh, showing where contrails have been avoided. Of course, there were a lot of scenarios where that didn't necessarily happen. But what do you see going forward? Do you think that this is an important area that we should still put our focus into because getting the operational side of it right is equally as important as reducing the scientific uncertainties. 
absolutely there's there's there's, there's problems on both sides aren't things that you know the the prediction and the the quantifying the the actual impact is is far from certain obviously but also yeah operationally it's you know i think there's a just i mean i think it's it's great that people are enthusiastic and want to be positive and to do something but as i say you could be doing the wrong thing you know you can actually see uh, you know visually yourself a, a contrail forming and then there'll be gaps in it because the the you know it's quite variable the the um conditions for control formation is very very on this tiny subgrid scale so being able to you know predict that sufficiently for every flight it seems it seems uh, a long way off so um i think uh i have no um nothing against um people considering this more uh but um yeah i, I would say focus on the on the co2 speaking of people considering this more of course you also have the chance to pass on a question. Um, and uh, the next person, are you aware of flight keys? No. <laughs> then this will be interesting. <laughs> okay. Then um, so our, then this could be like a, this could be a completely, um, I don't know, blind kind of a question, let's say. So our next guest uh, will be um, Alejandra Frias from Flight Keys, and she's a PhD candidate and Head of Contrail Research and Sustainability at FlightKeys, a flight navigation software provider mm -hmm. that is already trialing um, the execution of contrail avoidance um, within their software with American Airlines and uh, also Breakthrough Energy. Is there any, without knowing her personally, is there anything that uh, could be interesting asking her? Well, I guess I guess the question of of how how you would develop a fast response, you know, uh, prediction of, of ice supersaturation and a usable format. Um, how, how is that possible at this moment? That's a fair question. We take it on, don't we, Kieran? Yeah, very interesting question to, to pass on for sure. This was a very interesting discussion. Um, I really appreciated um, all of your views and uh, and the insights that you provided, Bethan. We link everything that we touched upon in the show notes, all of the paper, even um, some of the regulatory things that you mentioned with regards to metrics. And other than that, um, I'm just left to say thank you. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bethan. Then speak soon and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.